EMSradio.com. EMS information for the next generation. The EMS Garage is a production of EMSradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Garage. Easy on the phone there, want to know if uh, you can handle that call as well. Just confirming you are checking the patient. Yeah, I'm going to make 22 stops, Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the EMS Garage, the uh, weekly podcast that's streaming live, and we're actually recording this for all to see at EMS Expo 2010 here in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for coming by and listening in. If you're walking by wondering what this is about, it's podcasting. It's EMS radio and video now. Um, who knew? We're actually yeah. on TV, wow. which is a little scary. Big time. Does it I still know. add the 10 pounds? Big time. It does. You know, actually, I look a little <laughs> fatter. A little fatter. Ooh, there's a, there's a good girl in EMS <laughs> question. Right. Woman in EMS question. Sorry. <laughs> I'm your host, Chris Montera, geeky medic on all the websites, Facebook, Twitter, and everything else. I'm joined today by a bunch of people, so we're going to cycle through quickly. Um, this podcast is sponsored by Zoll, and it's also part of the Zoll Podcasting Studio. We'd like to thank Zoll for sponsoring the EMS Garage noon on Thursday at EMS Expo. Joining me first is Jewel Scadden. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. We know where you're from, but tell us again. I am from a little tiny town called Sac City, Iowa. Nice. Yeah. Tiny? Tiny. Like 2,300 people. And we're the county seat. So okay. my whole county is very, very rural, almost frontier-like rural. We have five ambulance services, 75%, or 75 volunteers, and five paid providers. And how many years have you been in EMS? I've been in EMS for 18 years. Okay. And all of those in the small town in Iowa? Um, actually, I lived in a smaller town where I started out as a volunteer. That was only 650 people. I did volunteer for, strictly volunteer for about seven years while I raised my kids. And then I went back and got my paramedic and thought, you know, I love this so much, I might as well get paid for it. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Also joining us, Mr. Steve Whitehead. Hello. Hello. How are you? Very good. How about you? Good. From the EMTspot.com? Correct. Dot org, dot net, yes. Dot yeah. I'm a firefighter paramedic from Colorado, and I'm an EMS educator out there. I've been in EMS education for about 15 years. Yeah. I do write for EMS Magazine, so you may encounter my articles out there every once in a while. And you're absolutely right. I am the author of theemtspot.com. And you've been on our show many other times, which I, I love. I crash. Yeah, I like it. I like it. If I, if I get a topic to get you going... Yeah, it's good. And you're like in your block. Yeah, I think you're in the the hallway of the firehouse or something, telling me you're going to go. So. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> like if I just disappear, it's because I got a call. I'm sorry. That's yeah. right. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's part of the it's part of the job. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Also joining us, first time on the garage, Amy Benning, from Thank you for having me. Pinedale, Wyoming. Pinedale. Thank you. God's country. High enough elevation, no snakes, but snow nine months out of the year. Only drawback. Well, that's true. And but you have wind. No. No we're, wind? We're in God's You're on the country. other side? I'm you're on telling the other you, side? we're on the right, right side of the mountain. Oh, okay. All right. That's, no. that's where we're at, too. Okay. Good enough. I like that. And uh, first time at Expo? No. You've been at Expo thousands of times. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> How many years have you been in EMS? 14. Right on. Very yeah. cool. Started when I was two. <laughs> And that and, would be another And there comment. we go. Well, I I'm had to just put gonna... that in because I'm 10 pounds high, heavier, and, right. and I didn't But the camera the makes camera. you look 12 years radio. younger, so you're okay. Wow. Yeah, well, you remember, part of this is, well, it's on, it's on, it's audio, too, so people won't see. I know. I like the auto, audio part. I dress for that. Okay. See, perfect. Yeah. Me, too. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Steve and I are here, and we don't really know why, because we're going to be talking just briefly about women and their roles in EMS, but I think more importantly, leadership roles in EMS. And so where where are we as an industry? Um, I know when I started as a volunteer, the entire service was mostly women. And um, because they ran the service during the day, 
it seemed like, because they had time and they could do it. And then at night, there would be gentlemen that would come on the ambulance and do the, do the night shift calls. And it was volunteer, things like that. But um, I've seen over time where the professional paid services are, have been men. But I think more and more we're seeing women move, into the, move from the EMT to paramedic to leadership roles. Have you guys seen that in 18 years and 14 years in the industry um, where you're at? And I know you guys are both leaders, um, not only for NAEMT, but for other things um, nationally. Tell me, what's been a struggle in that? Well, I think part of it for women, um, and that's true, especially in the volunteer systems, you're going to see a majority of women during the day because they stayed home, took care of kids. You could form sort of a babysitter coalition. So if you had a call, somebody would take your kids, right. go out on calls and things like that. And then at night, the husband or the male came home from a, a job, usually out of town, especially if it's a small, small town, and um, took over that role. Kind of after, for me personally, it was after I got done raising my babies that I was able to go to work in this and get paid for it and work full time in it. So I really think that's a big issue for women, why they can't, they don't really traditionally get into it. Although I do see that move, we've become so much more diversified than we were when I started. Women are multitasking and you know able to do a lot more with it. So um, I do think you see a bigger move for more women coming into it, but traditionally career in my experience has been primarily men. Um, I worked for a Clive Fire Department, which was um, it's a uh, suburb of Des Moines, <clears throat> and there were only four women on the entire squad, on the entire in the entire department. Oh man! So and the rest were all men. Right. But you know, people are well. It's a fire department. Well, the other three women were actually firefighters. Also, I was not because <laughs> I just thought I was a little too old to be trying to help anything up a ladder. So. Um, but you're seeing that more and more, I think, that you're seeing the younger women are now, you know, they're just able to do things, that, and they're doing it earlier. They're having children later. That was the other thing. I started having my kids very young. <laughs> well, well, but that is a question, though. I, as, the, as, that typic, as that traditional role has changed for women staying at home, we've seen even smaller services that had to go paid because of that, mm-hmm. um, because there wasn't that ability. So, Amy, you've raised uh, seven kids? Six. Six, okay. All right, sorry. Six. Okay. How do, was that you know, more difficult, less difficult? You know, I think um, the key has been, is for me, is my spouse is an equal. You know, we hmm. have companies on the side. And so I help him during the day. He helps me at night type of thing. And, and he really is a huge support for when I come and advocate for EMS and its profession. I think that you are getting more of that um, respect among couples, which right. comes into the profession. You know, men are willing to listen as an equal to what women have to say. Women are feeling like they have to be less pushy to get their point mm. across. It's more of an equal conversation. And I think that that is huge for all of the industries, um, not just EMS. So even as, as much in the corporate world as it is in the EMS world. When I started in EMS 14 years ago, I started on uh, South Ogden Fire Department. I was the only woman, and we, had, we still had to change the sign over on the bathroom door. <laughs> you know, right. woman inside, don't enter. <laughs> you have to go really bad to go in the back. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but South Ogden was a... <laughs> South Ogden was a city department, you know, and so having a woman on there created a lot of different dynamics, and I think it was hard to relate on a personal level without feeling like there was a um, more than a professional relationship. Does that make sense? Sure, understandable. And so I think that caused um, not really a uncomfortable feeling among the department. I think it was just something that had to be worked out among everyone. And I think that now that we have enough women and men teams working together in the back of the ambulance and we've earned that professional respect and learned where those lines and boundaries are and how we can utilize the men's analytical position and the woman's caring position mm-hmm. in the back of the ambulance, I think that you're going to see more and more teams set up as women and men. Well, that's interesting. Every, so. Yeah. so, Steve, how long have you been in EMS? I, I guess I never knew. Uh, just a little more than 20 years. Almost lick. So, lick the mic. Lean so, in and lick. There you yes. go. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> just, you're trying to set me off. A little bit, a little bit. A yeah. uh, little more than 20 years. Have, and so have I you seen it? Also right. when I was two years old. So I know. We, ha- we have that in common. I know. All I think right. we all do on the stage. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> so have you, seen, have you seen those roles change in your time in 20 years? Uh, not 
not dramatically, and I think that that might be because I started out in California, and I think oh, California is always sure. kind of a leading indicator, and in, you know, uh, women's rights, or you know, so as as a California being a more liberal state, I think I had a very even twenty years ago, I had a workplace that was populated by women from mm. you know from from day one. Um, I don't think that was ever really a a, a challenge to integrate women into our workforce. Well, what about, but but now as we're moving um, into the 2010s, teens, yeah. I don't know what that is, uh, we see more and more women taking leadership roles. Yeah. Has that been a challenge? Do you guys, do you think that's challenging? I don't, I know, I don't think for my generation that's a challenge. I think we're like, mm, okay, yeah, it's normal, it's fine. Uh, but I think that maybe some of our older peers, um, maybe the baby boomer generation a little bit, sure. may have a problem with that. And have you, have you, uh, Amy or Jules, have you guys seen those stereotypes against you a little bit? Well, I've had, throughout my career, I've had instances where there's been that, that situation, you know, where there's, I don't know, I suppose somebody call, somebody would call it discrimination. I chose not to. Mm. Um, it, and maybe it was, but I think it's more, like you said, it's a generational way of thinking. So when I first got into it and became a paid provider, I got into a fire department that was already established with the old chief and the old, and they had very set ideas of what a woman's role was. Hmm. Um, so I've seen that evolving as the younger generation starts getting into those leadership positions. But I think what's really important for women um, in this this business to understand is that it's, sometimes it's our own mindset that holds right. us back, mm-hmm. and, and we go into it with a really bad attitude that, you know, oh, it's a good old boys club and I don't fit. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to give away a little bit of a girl secret. Girls have good old girls clubs, too. Ah, you know? I never so, do that. Okay. Um, so really it's a matter of getting beyond that and, and, and focusing on the whole issue and who's going to be able to do the job to, to fix things that need to be fixed. and. And Amy and I had this conversation this morning because we both come from very tiny rural areas. And um, I've done a lot of stuff with my state. She's done a lot of stuff with her state. And we both fully believe that there is a leader in every service, whether it's a service of two people or 25 people. There's at least one really good leader there, and there's at least one really good mentor and the, and the key is getting those two together, and it doesn't matter whether they're a man or a woman. Right. Very, very well said. And, and actually, some of the best, and Steve Barry, I'm going to steal a quote from Steve Barry, some of the best partnerships are a male-woman, or a man, mm-hmm. man and woman partnership, because they do bring different things to it in patient care and in attitude. It, it, if I was going to point to an attitude that has, has maybe changed during my career, is I think you just gave a great example of it, and that is I think it was – important uh, 20 years ago when I entered the workforce that we maintain this uh, this view of sameness. We're going oh, to right. pretend that there is no difference <laughs> between female and male employees. That, that that would not be politically correct. And I think now, I think we've moved to a more enlightened, possibly, view of that to say, instead of pretending that we're the same, let's identify the skill sets that make us a better team when right. we work together. And I, I have a great example of that right now. I, mean, I, I work in a fire service. I am right now assigned to a medic unit, um, and my partner is a five foot four female, and she is a firefighter. Pam is every bit the firefighter that, that I am. Um, she's a, a small, slight woman. She has a very different skill set that I have. Now, if we're on a fire scene together, we're expected to perform all those duties of a firefighter. If we have to drag a charged hose line a long way, I'm going to be the one primarily contributing to that effort. Mm-hmm. I can do it faster. If the fire's in the attic, Pam's going through the scuttle hole. Right. You know, <laughs> She's our sense, confined right? space specialist. Uh, she, uh, we're both on the dive team. That's why we mm-hmm. work together. We're both divers. Pam's an outstanding diver. Uh, that and I think her her size uh, lends to that. So I don't think showing up and pretending that Pam and I are the same employee is the way to look at it. Uh, we we show up and we see that we're a better team together. We're a more versatile team. Nice. Yes, ma'am. So so that brings up a question for me. Um, coming from a fire EMS situation, what is the one thing that women have done to make them more 
regrettable in a man's eyes that, as a co-worker to you? How, how, how have they earned your respect? Mm. That's kind of to my question to both of you. This, I, don't, I may create some controversy with <laughs> That's this okay, answer. That's okay, because we're never about done that women, on my show, ever, started, ever. You know, but. But, but I think I accurately represent the attitude of the women that I work with in the fire service. I think this answer is respectful to them. One thing is not accepting accommodation on, on any level. And that is something that gets kicked around and gets debated from time to time. Well, should we take that physical agility test and mm. make it a little bit easier to make our workforce more accessible to females? And it is the females in our department that tend to be the first ones to step up and say, absolutely not. Exactly. Right. You will yeah. not do that. They refuse that accommodation because I think they would see that as uh, pandering is not the right word, but uh, patronizing to yes, them. I agree. For yeah. us to say we need to create uh, a different standard. Uh, and that, that earns my respect every mm-hmm. time because I know that the woman sitting next to me on that fire engine or in that medic unit did every single thing that I did to be there. Right. That, that makes them truly equal. And what about you, Chris? What, what have women... Are you the interviewer here? Yeah, wow, is. this is great. She I love turns, it. She I love tends it. to turn it's things good. back I love on it. you. Hey, you know, I like to hear from other people because right. that's actually where we learn. Right. You know, and if your podcasters are listening, they're needing to know what can we do to get into those primary spots and still have that respect mm-hmm. from the man and the woman teams. And I think it's important to get your guys' perspective. I love what you said because that's, you know, when I worked on the fire department, um, they were controversing on, you know, should Amy have to do the you know, the firefighter challenge to get on the department or not? And it was like, oh, heck, yeah, because if you go down, I have to carry your butt out of there. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if, you know, where I'm right. at. Right. And so, but. Well, I've been in both the fire and EMS service. And um, I will tell you that, again, I guess maybe more enlightened attitude of, you know, I have enjoyed every female partner that I've had in the EMS industry and in the fire industry because they bring something different and they didn't expect to be treated any different. And But you would have, you would automatically, the best partner I ever had was a woman named Donna and her and I would just, you could look at each other and know instantly. It was that partner that you always hope for and dream for in the back of an ambulance. You could just look at and go, yep, we just know we go to work and we just do our job and we have lives and things like that. So, um, yeah. So for me, it's, but that's why I have you guys up here because I want to talk about those challenges and we have to go because we are at 10, 20 minutes after. Um, we'll talk about, I want to have you guys on a real garage. We'll actually talk about this more because, um, the female listenership of our show is very low. And uh, I think having more females on the show would be great. (laughs) You guys need to do more of those. Well, I know we're working on it. We're working on it. Oh, good point. Good point. Okay. We like our, so I thought that was guys. I thought that was guys, but I'm going either way. Okay. All right. (laughs) Well, thank you guys very much. And, uh, I will put all of your information in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Chris, thanks for having us. Rock, brother. And as we transition out to come to Zoll and Kelly and Dr. I can't remember Dr. Last, Dr. last name. Kurz, right. He was on last year. Was so awesome. Loved having him on. So come on up, guys. We're going to talk about some interesting things. We'd like to thank Zoll for sponsoring this pod, podcast specifically and for the entire booth, the Zoll Podcasting Studio here at EMS Expo 2010. I am Chris Montero, the Geeky Medic, and we'll get everybody up here and adjust their levels, and we'll be right back with you. Wow, my production assistant is awesome. She's on it today. Thank you very much for uh, Thanks, having me on. You bet, you bet. Good. <laughs> She's way better than me. We've all known that. All right. Give me a, give me a check there, Kelly. Mic check. Mic check. Remember, almost lick the mic. Almost lick it. Mic check. There you go. Yeah. Can you, you hear like in your it? headphones? You, you like okay? that, do you? Okay. <laughs> there you go. If I lick it, do I own it? it well, yeah. I won't <laughs> tell you who else licked that this week. So, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and, Doc, go ahead. Hello? Hello. Hang on. Hello? We are got a little bit of reverb. Hang on one second. There we go. Can you guys hear me? Oh, yeah. Your level's oh, yeah. okay? Great. Perfect. All right. 
Um, so before we start, I just wanted to find out what do you guys what have has Charlotte prepped you guys for what we want to talk about at this point in no. juncture? No. Perfect. Okay, great. So we'll just go. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, Good job, Charlotte. <laughs> see, oh, well, of course, we always want to talk about CPR whistle. Okay, that's fine. Ow. That might have hurt a little. <laughs> I'm Chris Montera, a geeky medic, and we're back on the EMS Garage here at EMS Expo 2010. We are engaged in our noon podcast. We've been doing podcasts pretty much every hour on the hour. Ooh, and we have a shirt. We want to give away a shirt to the gentleman talking... No. Charlotte, hand it to the gentleman talking to Carissa right now. Navy Stinger Doc. That's an EMS. Oh, that's Navy Stinger Doc. Sweet. That's an EMS One T-shirt from EMS One dot com. Thanks for the Frank. Thanks for their swag this week. It's awesome. Uh, so Kelly, uh, who are you and where are you from? Um, I'm Kelly Grayson. Uh, I blog at a Day in the Life of an Ambulance Driver and and have a corresponding uh, column with a similar name on EMS One. That's it. And you're a friend of EMS Garage. We love friend having of you EMS on. Garage. Yes. I occasionally log on to terrorize you guys. <laughs> and uh, John, right? Yep. Good afternoon. I'm John Cloutier. I'm a paramedic and a marketing manager for EMS at Zoll Medical. And uh, how long have you been in EMS, John? Uh, 26 years this year. Congratulations. Yeah. Recovering okay. paramedic or still practicing? No. Uh, well... I- indirectly practicing okay. education and, and other good product development stuff. Very nice. And Doc? Uh, my name is Michael Kurz. I'm the medical director for Henrico County, Virginia. In, where can you get? Where, where is where that? Is that? <laughs> yeah, where is that? Well, so if you're watching the news yesterday, yes. the president was in our county yesterday. Um, it's the county immediately north of Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Commonwealth, kind of right smack in the middle. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. And since Zoll is sponsoring this podcast, we wanted to talk about some of the interesting things and research in CPR and maybe some of the interesting things that Zoll's doing specifically in the area of CPR. Um, and then we can talk about anything else we want to talk about. So so tell me, John and, and Mike, Michael, or Mike, can I call you Doc? What do you, what do you like? What, whatever, whatever works for if you. If I just yell at you and go, yeah. "Hey, you," yeah, okay, right, right, perfect. Work. All yeah. right, I might um, respond then. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can tell a good medical director. He's like, "Yeah, it's okay. well, whatever. It's, it's, fine. it's yeah. fine. Yeah, <laughs> just show me where to sign and, and make sure that paramedics are doing their job. It's happy." Uh, so, tell me, are you guys um, what what's new at Zoll as far as CPR and and what is some of the new research you guys are looking at with with cardiac monitors and and maybe even the um, we don't like to call it the geezer squeezer, but uh, my Zoll representative called it that one time, and I can't get it out of my head. Uh-huh. She was awesome. So Great. Well, I can speak to the technologies that we're doing at Zoll, and I'll defer to the research to Michael here uh, and kind of dovetail onto what he says. But what we're doing at uh, Zoll, and specifically at EMS Expo this week, is displaying some of our new technologies uh, as it relates to resuscitation, and specifically with the E-Series, the ALS and BLS multi-parameter defibrillator monitor, which you're familiar with, um, we have incorporated some c- real-time CPR feedback capabilities to include what we're uh, calling real CPR help that visually and audibly coaches you and prompts you through your uh, CPR, so rate and depth right. specifically, with a good indication of your uh, uh, coronary perfusion or pulse per- or perfusion index. Uh, also, something that's unique to Zoll E-Series is our see-through CPR. Right, So exactly. today, in any other device, you and I work at cardiac arrest, we're doing compressions. We have to stop compressions to see the underlying rhythm. What's special about the see-through CPR is as you do compressions, it subtracts, the, the algorithm subtracts the motion artifact to give wow. you a visual indication of the underlying rhythm. That could be very so handy. It's incredible. Yeah. So the whole goal following the guidelines is press hard, press fast, don't interrupt, full recoil. So now will, it, will it also take into account for, say, something like the auto pulse? Will it, will it definitely, uh, will you be able to, does it see that as well um, in a CPR waveform, or can it take out that? So Can to, it take out that artifact is what I'm asking. Right. So right. today, that's not what it's indicated for. Okay. It doesn't have see-through autopulse capability, I think is what you're, you're, right. you're speaking to. But today, this is for manual compressions only, okay. not for mechanical. Okay. Mechanical. That makes sense. So, okay. Yeah. 
and and what about research? Where are you guys going um, and looking at some of the new AHA guidelines? We know they're not out yet, but they're coming out soon. What have you guys have you guys started looking at um, that for not only your own service but for Zoll and for how that's going to fit into the future of what you're building? So. Um uh, I sat on the AHA guidelines committee, so can I get the, a can I get a sneak peek? Uh, no, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> uh, which means I I can't talk about any of that. You'll find out, like I'll find out on the on the 18th. Of, I think the date's 18th of October. October. Yep, exactly. Right. Um, <clears throat> but one, so the the specific research I'm interested in, uh, we know it's very dangerous in the back of the ambulance. Um, there's lots of acceleration forces, and, and I think mm. all of us in EMS know this intuitively. Uh, you ride around, you get thrown around when you do um, manual CPR. Uh, what we are very interested in is looking specifically at just how bad or how rough it is in the back of the ambulance and how that directly affects the CPR being performed. Right. Um, the, the reason for that being is either we need to make a decision not to transport these people Very because nice. driving lights and sirens is dangerous, as the folks in uh, uh, Prince George or Prince William County, Maryland, mm-hmm. found out in the middle of September, right? Yep. Um, or what we need is some type of hands-free device in the back of the ambulance if, if you decide that you are going to do CPR in the back of the ambulance um, so that... Uh, we don't have somebody standing up, uh, not holding on to anything unrestrained, uh, w- while we try to resuscitate these folks. It's, Go ahead, Kelly. Well, it's interesting that you uh, that you mentioned the, the poor quality of CPR in a moving ambulance. Um, the agency I work for uh, has tripled our cardiac arrest survival to neurolo- uh, neurologically intact to hospital discharge. We tripled it in since 2005 by not transporting our cardiac arrest patients. Yes. We, we work them on scene. They give mm. us all the time we need. Uh, and if we transport someone, we transport someone with a pulse. Right. Or we, we call the coroner for a, and call medical control for prevention of terminate efforts. Um, that and de-emphasis uh, on early intubation and cardiac arrest yeah. has, has tripled our survival rate to uh, close to 8% um, in 2005 to right at 21% now. Yeah. So. I think I think what we're seeing now is that um, uh, while we kind of all knew CPR was important, um, there's a huge amount of emphasis. So the the initiative, like you said, uh, a de-emphasis on airway. Um, in my agency, we have two first look policies, right? So you show up for the cardiac arrest, and the guy at the airway gets one look at the airway, and then he gets a king. Uh, you get one look at the IV, and you get easy IO, and you're done. And then cold saline hanging uh, as the first bag, and, and we've had similar uh, similar results in, in our agency. So, and I think that that's what's cool for me is um, when we started in, well, when I started in the 80s, that we have really kind of come full circle, if you ask me, that back in the 80s when I took my first CPR um, test. I remember it was literally like the CPR Nazi standing over you going, you're not doing it correctly, you know, with the rate and the depth and making sure you were doing it correctly. And now, you know, and then over time we de-emphasized that and went to, okay, drugs are great, drugs are good, airway is important, and kind of de-emphasized the fact that really pumping hard and fast on the chest made a lot of sense. Um, now it's not, Now with technology and research and with enlightened medical directors uh, coming forward and saying, you know what, it's about making sure that you can do something for the patient while you can. And if you can't, don't transport them. But then, but then you also have the problem, though, that sometimes when you're, you get that ROSC, you just make that decision to transport, they, they will rearrest. So you mm-hmm. have to... Mm-hmm. And that's where I think then, then having something in the back of the ambulance to do those compressions and basically kind of free up the crew to really do the other things that are important in, in life-saving measures. But we already know that the, the compressions are what's saving lives. I think the, the bar for the, the professional paramedic now is set significantly higher than certainly when I was a medic. Um, and that was now almost uh, six years ago, seven years ago. Um, the bar set significantly higher. We, I expect my guys in the back of the ambulance to get the pulse back and mm. then do essentially critical care mm-hmm. to the hospital, 
I, we, I expect them to hang pressers. I expect them to maintain uh, a uh, capnography reading that's appropriate. I expect them to um, oxygenate and provide um, you know, oxygen-limiting ventilation. These are all critical care concepts that in the past... We, no one's, oh, they're just bringing them to the hospital. There, there was no emphasis at all that, that perhaps in the back of the ambulance we're actually practicing emergency medicine. The, the confines are a little different. The resources right. are different. But it's actually emergency medicine. And, and the paramedics mm-hmm. now in the modern era bring everything to the patient's side that, for cardiac arrest at least, that, quite frankly, I provide in the emergency department. There's not a whole lot different. They become a mobile intensive care unit. Absolutely. In essence, yeah. And that is, that's exactly how I explain to family members. Um, you know, the, the hardest part about trans, non-transport of, of arrest patients you know, with the crews is, is buy-in because they, mm. they don't, you know, they're used to transporting. Mm-hmm. Like, what, right. How am I going to explain to the family, oh, no, work a cardiac arrest on scene and not transport? Yeah. You've got to be kidding me. Um, but I transported the first cardiac arrest, full arrest patient I've done in seven years just the other day because it happened in the middle of church services. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> and, right. And that's important. Right. right. Yeah. 500 people yeah. praying right. and speaking in tongues. Right. Um, you, you know, it's not good to just cover them with a sheet and uh, wait for Fair it. enough. Yeah. And, and so. there, will, there will always be those instances yeah. for, for, you know, public places, um, uh, provider safety. <laughs> I, some of my guys run in less than uh, desirable areas right, I can imagine. by my stations. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so there are some places where, yeah, my guys, of course, are scooping them up and going. Right. Um, yeah. But for the 70% of cardiac arrests that occur in the home, mm-hmm. uh, why, why are we... Why are we transporting dead people to the hospital? And, right. and other than the, the uh, that one patient, I have yet to have had a patient's family uh, question why I didn't right. transport. Okay. And, and that's the simple explanation. I said, ma'am, you know, there's a lot of things the emergency department can do, uh, but as far as resuscitation, I'm doing everything that the hospital could do. Right. Yeah. They have no greater capabilities than I do. And, and when I load them and, and package them and, and stop CPR, everything I do uh, takes away from our chances of survival. Right. Uh, well, dare I put a put words in your mouth? Um, I have seen even over the past twenty two three years I've been in EMS the idea that we're changing from this idea of technician to clinician, and to me, I think that that's important. I, I think it's important for our peers in medicine to understand that it's we're trying to do the exact same things you're, you are doing in the ER, mm-hmm. but it's hard for nursing and other physicians sometimes to really understand that, that that even though our training is not exactly there yet and our education is not there yet, we are getting there and we're becoming more sophisticated. Not only are we becoming more sophisticated technologically, but we're becoming more sophisticated in our clinical um, diagnostic skills as well. There, I don't want to say we diagnose, but my state medical director told me the other day, you do diagnose every day. So just so you know that. <laughs> every single day at, at every step in patient care from first responder all the way through the, the critical care in the hospital. Well, and our, our, our current state medical director was a former paramedic so it's a good thing to have mm-hmm. uh, and and i think that's the other neat thing as i've seen over the past 20 years is we have this new uh school of physicians that were once paramedics mm-hmm. or were once emts and they have an understanding of it and now they want to give back they want to be medical directors they right. want to be involved they want to do research they want to say when i was back there sliding around in the back of an ambulance in in blood and puke and everything else it wasn't pretty and it wasn't fun but we we've got to do something differently for our patients and that's what's cool so now tell me are you guys doing any cool research in um in virginia or no i mean so we have that um uh we have the uh study that we're i was just speaking of where we put all the accelerometers in the back of the ambulance um in addition, we've done. Uh, we're part of the the NET trial, uh, the Neurologic Emergencies Treatment and Trials Consortium, uh, seventeen sites in the in the United States, um, of which we're doing. The current study is Rampart, uh, which is IV IV volume versus imidazolam for uh, status for status epilepticus. Um, the hope it's it's got some funding from DOD, um, and the hope being that. Um, uh, we could, uh, if Versed works out, the midazolam works out, um, that's a great drug then because you can give it IM for um, 
like uh, nerve gas agents, right? So right. that's how the, how nerve gas agents kill. It's a great uh, kind of anti-bioterrorism mm-hmm. um, stuff. Um, and then, um, yeah, we always have uh, – I, I work at VCU. That's my other hat uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University. And, and so we're always engaged in, in uh, research. And, John, so – what, how do you guys take that research then and apply, apply it to new technology at Seoul or even within your current job? I mean, what do you guys look at? And then um, I'm sure you guys have a, a bunch of guys in a lab coats that run around the back of Seoul. I, I mean, it's just in my mind that that would be really cool to see that. But anyway, they, uh, they run around and they, they start applying the research to the technology. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Well, I think we start by engaging with researchers in, in, the, in the pursuit of research. So we develop technologies and we co-develop technologies to help, uh, like Dr. Kurz, in, in their research, we have the autopulse, which you affectionately referred to as the geezer squeezer earlier. Um, but when you talk about acceleration and jerk uh, responses, the autopulse is really the answer to, uh, a, a large part of the answer, or the solution to this problem, where you can do effective compressions hands-free transporting a cardiac arrest patient, right? Right. Uh, you know, you said we don't, we don't transport dead patients. We should focus on the dying. But now we've got a tool that does several things. It's safe, right? It, better flow on the go is what we've coined yes. this. So oh, when that's you're good. in transport. Wow. Yes. Yeah. That's nice. I like good, that. Good I, hadn't heard of, I hadn't heard of that yet. <clears throat> good wow. marketing. Cool. <laughs> Catchy marketing there. Um, TM. You need to put TM after that. Oh, so you've you got a trademark right that. there. It was right at the copyright. end. Yeah. Okay. Better flow on the go, TM. Right. <laughs> um, but anyway, these tools, you know, we've all had the cardiac resuscitation. We've all rode the rail, so to speak, by doing mm. compressions. Now Code surfing. Code surfing. So if we have to transport cardiac arrest patients, active cardiac arrest, we're generating those tools to help help provide more safety and more clinical effectiveness for these patients, right? So there's, it's a win-win with what we're trying to do with these guys in the lab coats that we keep caged up in the dark room back at Zoll. So um, <laughs> we're heavily involved in research, not only uh, from a funding perspective, but from a general pers- uh, support perspective in every sense of the word, um, Zoll is definitely research-oriented. Well, and I've even seen some of the new technological advances at Zoll from like the uh, the navigator mm-hmm. and the rescue net link and all of those things that are starting to tie the field back into the hospital yeah. and just giving the hospital that much more heads up of what's coming in and mm-hmm. and that to me is very cool I, I just see the I just see how interesting it is to see technology starting to take over the back of an ambulance. Yeah, well, it's interesting because these monitor defibrillators have been biometric devices that Mm. help you check the condition of your patient. But now we're creating biometrics, if you will, of your EMS system. Mm. So now you know if your treatments, your midazolams or your volumes are effective or if we should be doing something else. So we're a very data-driven company. We've always thought of these defibrillators as, uh, you know, devices that emit a little bit of data. And my thought is these are data devices that shock once in a while. Very good, very right. good point. I was like, because everything in there is zero and ones. I mean, that's, that's right. all it is. That's and right. I'm sorry, I'm a little geeky, so I love to talk about okay. this stuff. So A little? <laughs> You're a cool geek. <laughs> so, but with those zeros and ones, it's everything. It's getting it not only out of the monitor, but then back into the patient care report. Yeah. Then, then we can give to the researchers right. to say, all right, maybe we should be changing this, or yeah. maybe we should tweak this. Yeah, and well, I, my, my passion is STEMI, STEMI management. Oh, nice. And so if I can get this data to the hospital ahead of the patient and do parallel processing, for the benefit of the patient, if we can get that patient in the cath lab that much faster right. to save the seven and a half percent, yeah, yeah, right. Wow, somebody was listening. Yes, what, what'd, you, what'd you say? <laughs> I heard you. I just wasn't. No, but if we can get that data to the hospital ahead of time for the benefit of the patient, right? Right. We're doing the right things, and I, I it's, I think that's what we're all working toward at Zoll. Very nice. Yeah. I love it, Kelly. I know you have something to say. No, actually. What? Are you kidding me? This has got to be be the first time in history I've never heard you talk. (laughs) What if I brought up guns? I mean, can we talk about guns? There's a booth I really want to visit. Have you been over to that one? It's really cool. I I, I gazed at it avariciously as I went past. There was a lot of uh, semi-automatic and fully automatic shooting things there. Yeah. Although I'm a little afraid because right down the right down the row from there are things to stop you from bleeding once you've been hit by bullets. So, you know, it it was a good it was very parallel marketing. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Uh, So, Doc, what what are you guys looking for um, in the next 
maybe year um, on your service to uh, and let's go ambulance safety for a minute okay have you guys looked at any of the new because everybody's talking about okay we're losing the fords and we've got chassis issues and all these things coming up have you guys started looking at sprinters or forward facing and all these other uh you, you know construction and ambulance type as we're sitting next to the ambulance booths yeah. here but you know <laughs> they're like yelling at me no uh, but uh, but seriously how has your service started looking at those safety issues because it's about crew safety in the back not right. only keeping people from keeping people belted in but um crash worthiness of the ambulance um I, I think the the fact that um there essentially aren't crash ratings uh, for ambulances is uh, a scary thing. And, and, and you ask yourself, uh, why are there no uh, crash ratings? Uh, it's because all the crash ratings for cars are driven by the insurance industry. There's mm. this nice place just north of Charlottesville called uh, IIHS, mm-hmm. which is the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety, I think. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's all the insurance companies... Uh, crash a bunch of cars there so they can figure out what's the safest so they can then figure out how much to charge you, right? In, in EMS, uh, there is none of that. Um, and so because there's no economic drive, there's no business model to provide that. Uh, and so uh, there's not a whole lot of difference between ambulances that I rode in even 10 years ago um, uh, and today. Um, and and most of those changes are fairly uh, most of those changes are fairly expensive. I'll be honest, um, the the very specific technical changes that you're talking about, I, I know very little about because we're not in a in a uh, transport buying cycle. So that sure. that cycle will come, I think, uh, eighteen months or two years from now or something. Are you guys using road safety devices? In oh, your we're not. You're so not. Okay. The, so my research uh, was done in. Um, uh, Richmond Ambulance Authority initially, which mm-hmm. is uh, of Richmond Ambulance Authority fame, um, yes. where they have that device deployed in every transport unit uh, where, with the biofeedback, right? So so you're driving too fast mm-hmm. or something, you take a corner too, too fast and you get demerits. Uh, if you get too many, you lose your job. We right. use the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and we have medics that, you know, uh, implementing, you know, uh, fostering a safety culture in your organization is going to require more than a, a tattletale box. Fair enough. Right. We've got, I mean, we've yeah. got guys who, who ride the box and, and, and uh, pride themselves on, on getting a, a 29.5 force count, you know, right, right on the edge of a 30% force <laughs> count and not get a click. Um, <laughs> but they'll, they think nothing of blowing through a red light mm. um, yeah. uh, to avoid getting a, a demerit. Yeah. You know, and you learn to drive the box after a while and, and and uh, the tattletale box is not going to to uh, induce those people to change their ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, but a problem than just something. Uh, I'm I'm ambivalent about uh, about road safety uh, and or just drive cams and, and policies in general. I think uh, a great deal of that stuff is is what risk managers do instead of something. Well, yeah. well, yes and no, and I don't know. If uh, I, to a certain extent, I, don't know if I mean, I, agree with I, that. I know we need to. I, we need to have some sort of, uh, but but too many of these things are, are band aid approaches hmm. um, that that are, are going to do very little to address the the individual crew's actual approach to safety. Um, you're not going to change their mindset, and that's what's going to be necessary uh, to uh, to to. Uh, you know, foster a safety culture uh, and make it part of your organizational ethos. So. Well, but I, I agree with you, and we took it's been perp- it's been purposeful in our service that we actually created the safety culture first, and then institute the boxes. You can't assume that the boxes are going to fix your safety culture problem. And I do agree with you to that extent. But I also think that it's important that that doesn't become punitive. And it's got to be a learning environment, and it's got to be something that people now, of course. If somebody is continually doing something, you may have to look at why. But I, but I think that if you've generated the culture, most people are going to be like, I'm not going to do that anyway. And we'll, we'll find out. I think the biggest benefit for us is just seeing um, how our crews drive. And, and it's reinforcing our idea that, yes, they are driving carefully versus, okay, what are they really doing out there? And so we just implemented them two or three months ago. And they're on, but the crews don't know it. We're just getting background yeah. data so we can see how... Because I, I don't believe in being punitive that way. I don't. It doesn't foster anything good because then, you're right, everybody goes, they blow through the red light because they don't want the thing to go off, which is a dumb policy. <laughs> you want them to stop. The right. Technology, well, um, dumb policies are uh, a part and parcel of EMS. True, too, good sometimes. point. Uh, 
Um, I worked for an agency that required you to stop at intersections individually and clear each individual lane, though. So you were vulnerable in the intersection oh. four or five times as long. <laughs> so you had right. to stop, look, stop, look. Um, I, I don't think uh, technology is going to be important to us, but I, I don't think it's fully going to drive the, uh, a safety revolution mm. um, because things. Uh, um, I can remember uh, a time when I was, you know, in a 1984 Ford Econoline van doing 130 miles an hour down a country road. Um, it took me uh, it took me a few years to realize just how stupid that was, um, and and it's 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 going to be a slow process, and and yeah, uh, um, I just uh, I really. Uh, I'm unsure of how much technology will play a role. I'm sure it will to a certain extent, but uh, um, it's not going to be the. Um, before I got off on the tangent, I was I was going to talk about the NFPA, the proposed NFPA uh, regs. I can't remember the exact one for uh, ambulance manufacturing standards. Hmm. I wonder why they were. I wrote a column on this on EMS One. Why they are trying to reinvent the wheel, and one of the uh, one of the telling facts in, in the article that I cited was. Uh, that some of the manufacturers uh, are quoting ambulance prices um, of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, Whoa. if I'm going to pay a quarter million dollars for an ambulance, it better be staffed by Johnny and Roy Cyborgs. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and and if making us safer with all of these uh, required safety uh, features and, and the lighting and the cameras and the and the the reflective striping and all that becomes so cost prohibitive that you delay your purchasing cycle and keep your older, less safe ambulances mm. on the road past the prime? Are, are we really being made safer? That's a good question. That's a very if you good make point. It, if you price them out of reach uh, with all the extra bells and whistles of questionable benefit, are we really safer? Because a lot of agencies, in, in particularly in today's economic climate, are going to say, well, we're going to stick with the old trucks with the iffy suspension and, and, uh, and try to stretch the service life on them as long as we can. I, I think if you cost that out, you could make an, an argument, right? I mean, a $250,000 initial outlay for a, for a safe vehicle may be well worth it. If you look at what the cost of on-the-job injuries are, back injuries, one wreck, what does it cost to maintain a, a, an injured paramedic or an EMT for their lifetime? I, I, you know, it may be. It may be. I thought that's where dispatchers came from. Oh, oh man. Actually, that concludes you just this like You just offended like half my audience. <laughs> no, actually, I have more offensive things to say about okay. dispatchers than that, and I censored myself. But uh, I have a joke I make about it. But uh, I love peace and love to all you dispatchers out there, especially my dispatchers. I don't know. I just think we have to be very careful when we start talking about rescuer and patient safety and putting mm. a value on that. I, I, you right. know, I just think that you can't under undervalue and underestimate the impact that the safety the safety component has here. Uh, I mean, we all want to do the right thing, but we need to do the right thing for our ourselves, our communities, especially you know when you're driving code three. You know, you got to have to ask why why are we driving code three? Right. Is it, exactly. is it right. necessary? Right. Well, very right. good point. And, right. Yeah. Well, I know why we're driving Code 3, because we have contracts that are tied to dollar amounts that say you have to get there in 8 minutes and 59 seconds or less, because which are have, based on faulty data. Because well, we for generations unrealistic expectations. I think you just hit it. It's based on faulty data, but because EMS has now become evidence-based, hmm. hence the research, now we can start to make some great arguments like Michael is in terms of data. You know, show right. us the acceleration facts. Show us the jerks. And then we can start to make change, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we started out doing CPR years ago with 5 to 1 was our compression ventilation ratio. No wonder it didn't work. Right? <laughs> no wonder. We didn't get blood moving through the coronary arteries. So with that science, now we're doing 30 to 2. So right. now with the science in our speed and in our acceleration studies, now we can start to make the, the clinical and the, the educated argument that speed kills good point right no. well i agree, i agree that i think emergent's going to go away um in our service we we respond emergent less than 20 percent um which is pretty unheard of we're 911 almost exclusively um and i think everything is going to get smaller i would I, I i hopefully the ambulance manufacturers aren't listening to this too much but um i saw a uh, there's a place in colorado they're in very rural very middle of nowhere, 85 miles to Denver, um, and they're using, they just bought a fleet of Suburbans that have been converted to ambulances. I'm like, hmm, kind of wow. back to the old, and everybody's forward and rear facing, and their their thing is, we don't transport anybody that's um, dead, 
And if they do die, we have the ability. They actually have Zol um, auto pulses, and they said we're going to put that on, and we'll transport them with that on. Other everything else I can do right next to the patient. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to see code three driving go away or response. Right, I agree. You know, there are time critical events, i.e., STEMIs and strokes and other things that I don't think we should go away from code three transport. I agree. Right? I agree. Code three response. I think we need to be a little more judicious. I mean, things I that require immediate intervention, air, compromised airways. Uh, certainly, I don't think childbirth res- requires code three intervention all the time. Right? Or falls. So, falls. The only time <laughs> falls or an emergency life-threatening condition is if the phrase includes off a building. Yeah. Or, or unconscious. Yeah. yeah, or unconscious. <laughs> right. Right. But again, without, this, without, without the data, we can't really make those monumental leaps. And I think we're at a point in EMS where we're starting to make those leaps because we are becoming more data-centric. Right. Great. Yeah. Very good point. Doc, where can people find you and contact you? We're wrapping the show and oh. just wanted to give you the chance to tell people how to, how to email you um, good and bad comments. No, they'll just email you good, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm a, I'm a professor at VCU. They can get me at uh, mkurz, uh, well, my last name, K-U-R-Z, at vcu.edu. Thanks, Dr. Kurz. Sure. I appreciate it. John, where can people find you? At Zoll, uh, John Cloutier, J. Cloutier, common spelling. No, I'm kidding. J C L O. I was like, wow. C L O U T I E R at Zoll.com. And uh, email is the best way to get a hold of me. And what's the website for Zoll EMS? www.zoll.com. You can also find us on Facebook at, uh, I think I believe it's Fire and EMS. Uh, Zoll Fire and EMS. Yes, very good. See. Kelly, where can people find you? We where already I, know. Where I'm from, John, that would be Cloche. <laughs> Clouder, oh Cluder, whatever. <laughs> I'm like, man, Sha, it's, Sha, it's, how you spell your name? How you pronounce your name? It's, it's supposed to be Cloche, Sha. Because uh, oh that's how the Cajuns say it in South Louisiana. That's right. That's exactly um, right. You can find me on the, my blog is uh, amulusdriverfiles.com, a uh, Facebook page of the same name, um, uh, at AmboDriver on Twitter. Um, and uh, there are email links on, uh, on all those places. Great. And I'm Chris Montero, Geeky Medic. We, sorry, we've kind of. I like talking this way because normally I just <laughs> talk to my wall and my dog in my underwear. So doing the podcast in real life, I actually have to be fully dressed. In, in your beanbag chair with your bag of Cheetos. Uh, no, wow. I don't. I, no, not the Cheetos. Those are those come before because then you hear the crunching on the mic. Yeah. Uh, normally it's done with an adult beverage though, so it, yeah. it makes it, it makes it more fun. Thank I'm Chris. Don't do video cast. <laughs> that's true. Oh that's right. That's why we don't do it. Uh, my name is Chris Montero, Geeky Medic. Thanks for joining us at the Zoll Podcasting Booth here at EMS Expo 2010. Nice job.